continue uh, where we have left off there last time. Uh, I want to break that, as I say, tomorrow. There's some other things that I think uh, can be said that might be a big help to us in a lot of ways if we increase our understanding. And I think that I've seen some things that uh, have certainly increased mine and might help yours as well so that we can perform better, perhaps, than we have to date. <clears throat> so let's pick it up for today, then, in Psalm 119 and verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant, O Eternal, according to your word. I think there are a couple of elements we could consider with that and how God deals well with us according to His Word. If we keep His Word, then He automatically deals well with us. Because if we're in line with it, He is more favorable to us. We were hearing in the sermonette about a Laodicean attitude, and our attitudes and approach to life and worldwide and sense did not please God. We did not put Him first in everything. And therefore, we have gone through a great deal of trouble, and He hasn't, in that sense, from our perspective at least, dealt well with us. On the other hand, since we were not keeping His ways in the form and fashion He would desire, He has dealt with us through chastening and through trial, trouble, and tribulation. And those are outlined in His Word as well. <coughs> so it's good for us that this is happening so that it might correct our paths. So either way, He deals with us according to His Word always. Whatever happens to us has been allowed for within the pages of this book. He will not do anything with us or to us that is not allowed for in this book. Now Job had a serious problem, although he was essentially a righteous man. But God had many times in His Word in the Old Testament shown that if there was a wrong attitude or a wrong approach, that He had ways of dealing with it. So when He undertook to straighten that attitude out and use Satan as his tool, he had plenty of uh, authority based on the things he had said to do it just as he did it. It was no problem whatsoever. The beauty of it is that he was dealing well with Job according to the precepts that he had laid out and how did Job turn out? He went through horror beyond anything we can even imagine. And yet it all turned out for the good, didn't it? It was beautiful when it was finished. He saw God in a different light than he had ever seen Him. He was himself humbled and ready to take correction because he had had more than anybody had prior to that point. Once he learned to deal with it, <clears throat> and became truly humble, his whole life changed and turned around and was far better than it had been before all that happened. So God dealt according to his own word with him, and it turned out good. <clears throat> God always has our best interests in mind. 
Now, we don't always agree with him, do we? When we have trials, troubles, tribulations, and difficulties, we sometimes get frustrated, upset. We might even begin to get on the verge or the edge of blaming God for our trouble. Just because we're human and selfish, and we go that way. But there is no justification for that. Not when we come to our senses and understand. It took Job a while, and arguing back and forth with his friends and his wife and various ones, to come to the point he understood what his attitude was. <clears throat> but God knew how, to, he knew how to get Job squared away, didn't he? And he can do the same with any of us. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I have believed your commandments. But we believe God's commandments, don't we? We believe they ought to be kept. But here he's saying, I want to learn good judgment and knowledge from those commandments. You can read them and not necessarily learn wisdom and good judgment just automatically. You have to think about them and how they apply in your life and what the consequences are if you keep them or if you break them. And that's what meditation is all about. To think of the ramifications of what you do and say. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now have I kept your word. We tend to go astray from God. We tend to forget His words. We tend to leave them out. In fact, sometimes if we really want to think a certain way or go a certain way, they can disappear from our minds for a time, can't they? You can only think about what you want to do, not about what God says. It's so easy to forget what He says at times of temptation or desire or want or whatever there might be that comes upon us. It's not that we don't know them. It's just at that moment we can't think of them, maybe. Or they slip from our mind. <clears throat> so when we were afflicted, as a result of going astray, going astray from God's law brings affliction. He doesn't just have to grab affliction out here from somewhere and lay it on us. Now, he does in some cases, as he did with Job. But most of our troubles are brought upon us by our own thoughts and actions. That's where most of them come from. If we're hardcore in an attitude like Job was, then God may at times take uh, specific steps that didn't come upon us necessarily because of us. But really, maybe that's not even true. Didn't that come upon Job because of him? Because he was breaking God's law and didn't even know it. He was not putting God in as high a light, on as high a level as he should have been. So there was a certain element of idolatry there, of self. Because he had been so good, and none of us have probably really experienced this, 
But he was so good that he didn't see much difference between himself and God. God is just like me, I'm just like God, was kind of his approach to life. And he did keep God's laws as far as he knew. And didn't realize how high he had raised himself in his own assessment until God began to take everything away from him and almost bring him to death. And then the light came on. Oh, God is much greater. God is much higher. I am nothing down here and I am about to die. And I've lost everything that was important to me. Now I see the vast difference between God and me. Such a seemingly simple lesson, if you think about it. God made all the universe. God made this earth. God made us. We can't do any of that. But it's easy to lose sight of what God has done as we go about in our little world and forget how awesome He truly is. And therefore, we don't think big enough anymore. We think small, because we're small. And we do not tend to think large, unless we consider the greatness and the power of God and keep that foremost in our mind. Once we're afflicted, then we tend to keep His Word better, it seems. Why are we here today? Because God afflicted the church and scattered it, splintered it, and we are seeking now to keep His Word better than we did before. Some gave up. Some quit trying. Some said this is foolishness. Others are still going through the same motions without much change. If you are here today... You have in mind keeping His Word better than you did before. Because you will be challenged, and you will be corrected and instructed and guided to do so. And you have expressed and committed yourselves to doing that, or you would not be willing to put up with the kind of sermonettes and sermons you get here. In other words, baseline, we do want to change, don't we? We just face difficulties in it. There are things that keep us from it. And I want to address that in detail tomorrow. Of what blocks us from being what we want to be. Now, maybe it's not entirely new in some respects, probably not at all, but maybe a little bit better understanding and insight into how we do ourselves in and what we need to do about it, because we generally do do ourselves in. (coughs) Verse 68, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Now, in contrast to us, who by nature are evil and do evil, God is good and does good. So, we need Him to teach us how to be like He is. That's what this is all about. His statutes, His rules, 
are what make him good and cause him to do good because he keeps his own rules. We tend to break them. We tend to forget them. We tend to justify ourselves sometimes in doing things we want that are apart from him. And then we get ourselves in trouble, don't we? The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Now, there are those who might impute motives to us, who might say, well, they're not all they ought to be, or they're hypocrites because they're not perfect yet. People can make all kinds of judgments on us, can't they? It's easy to condemn someone else, to put someone else down, to be negative toward them, to find or stumble across things that might not be perfect about them, and to dwell on those things. And a lot of them are lies. A lot of them are not our motive at all. We impute motives to people that are not there. We assume people are thinking in ways that people often are not even thinking at all. Because we look at circumstantial evidence or whatever it is, and we think this, this, and that must be going on. They must be thinking this. We judge by sight. We don't really know. But we get in a bad attitude or a negative attitude or an approach, and then we spread that to others, and we cause problems that may not have even been there and ascribe motives that may not have been there at all because we misread the situation. Don't we? We do it all the time. And we cause trouble with that. Now, sometimes the assessment might be correct. We might have actually seen sin. Very possible, because humans do sin sometimes. But it does no good to get negative toward them. Can you change them? You might, with good example. You might by encouraging them, guiding them, leading them, helping them, talking to them. But you don't help them by talking to somebody else about them, do you? In fact, you can hurt them. Whispers can divide even chief friends. People who are the very best of friends as far as is humanly possible to be friends, can be separated by the whisperings and accusations, be they true or untrue. What good did it do to spread it, whatever it was? I've heard people uh, twist a scripture where it said it's the glory of God to hide sin. It is the glory of God to hide a matter. But it also says that it's the pleasure, or however it puts it, of kings to look into it. So they twist that by saying, well, kings ought to look into it. No, that's not what it's saying at all. It's contrasting God's way to man's way. And in fact, there's a proverb that says... But sometimes it's better for a ruler or a leader not to even know what people are saying. Because it can then discourage and frustrate them to the point they can't lead properly. 
Does it help in business or in families or wherever for every bad thing, every negative thought and comment to come to the foreman or the overseer? No. Because it can then skew their view of whoever's being talked about and cause trouble and animosity to come down on that person, and they wonder, where did that come from? Well, it's because your best friend told the boss about you. So the boss comes down on you. These things happen. We need to be very, very careful not to forge lies against each other. But in spite of anything that anybody might say, the commitment is that I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. We cannot let what human beings do or say interfere with our relationship with God. Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in your law. What does it mean, their heart is as fat as grease? Well, a lean heart works pretty good. But if your arteries and your heart are clogged with fat, with the wrong kind of cholesterol or whatever is plugging your arteries, arteries, homogenized milk or whatever, then there are problems. Now, your heart here is speaking more of, that's physical. Your heart here is speaking of your mind, your attitude, your emotions and your feelings. And if people have those things plugged with ugly fat, then that interferes with the working of them. It is that sin and accusation (coughs) plug things so that they do not work properly. Now, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. So what he tries to do is block and plug up the relationship between us and God. He goes before him, he goes before God, and accuses us of all manner of things. He wants to block us from a relationship with God. And when we do that with one another, then are we not blocking that person's relationship with God and with other humans and with ourselves if they find out the source. So it's like a plugged up heart. It can't operate right. We need to understand the ramifications. There's one thing to say you should not ought to do this. You shouldn't talk bad about others. You shouldn't gossip. Now, we can repeat those things, and they've been repeated in the church over and over and over again over the years. There's a lot of things we should not ought to do, okay? But it doesn't do much good to say that over and over unless we somehow come to understand through instruction and guidance what causes the problems that we have. What is the solution to them? Because you, you should not ought to do that doesn't give you the 
help or the ammunition you need to fix the problem. It's easy for us to point out problems in each other, isn't it? What's the fix? That becomes a much more difficult situation. How do you fix it? What do you do about it? Oh, that's a whole other ball game, isn't it? People get on talk shows all the time on TV. And it's obvious they have serious problems. But very frequently, if somebody is truly honest with them about what's causing the problems, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to change what's causing the problem. It's just there. And they are what they are. They are what they eat. They are what, how they act. And they don't want to change what they do that caused them to be the way they are. And if you tell them, they don't want to hear it. Because they don't really want to change it. They just want it to get better. It's like parents with children. They love to see respectful, obedient, pleasant children. But if you tell them what it takes to get children that way, they simply don't want to hear it. They would rather deal with anarchy and rebellion and squalling and screaming and disobedience than they had to take God's solution. I think we just got a whirly gust. So their heart may be as fat as grease. They're in a negative approach and attitude. The arteries are clogged. The heart and mind do not work right. But I delight in your law. Because God's law can unclog things and make them work right. If we do it God's way, things get better. It is good for me that I have been afflicted. That's a mouthful, isn't it? It's one we can read, but we don't like to hear. It is good for me that I have been afflicted. That I might learn your statutes. When we do wrong, when we get in a wrong attitude or a wrong approach, affliction occurs. Trouble comes. And then we learn to do his statutes better. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver. There are a lot of very, very unhappy rich people on earth. The entertainment world, for instance, is full of broken relationships and divorces. You know, when they get married, you don't expect it to last very long until it'll break up and they go from partner to partner to partner and then... Maybe they've made lots of money in films or music or whatever, and they get into drugs and all kinds of things that destroy their lives, and they wind up very unhappy, and suicide is fairly common in the entertainment world. Or, maybe not a specific suicide, but going a way that eventually kills you with drug overdoses or whatever. So we can have thousands of dollars or millions of dollars worth of gold and silver, 
But that doesn't bring happiness. <clears throat> People have learned that who've had that kind of money. The way of God is the only thing that produces happiness. You can be poor as a church mouse and be happy, or you can be rich and be happy, but it's much, much more difficult. It's easier to be poor and happy than it is to be rich and happy. That's just a fact. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They simply are not open to God's ways. Their God is their wealth, their money, their freedom, their ability to do whatever they want to do and have the money to do it. And God leaves their consciousness. And then they break God's laws and their lives become miserable and unhappy. <clears throat> Just the way it is. Verse 73, your hands have made me and fashioned me. Adam and Eve needed this advice, I guess. He had personally formed and fashioned their bodies with his own hands. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. So even though God fashioned them very carefully, and they were probably the most outstanding examples of male and female that have ever been on earth, been designed specifically by God and handmade. And yet, understanding and His commandments was far from them. They were so easily tempted to go a wrong way, <clears throat> and boy, did they mess life up for themselves and for you and me, because we have all followed in the same way they went. They that fear you will be glad when they see me. Interesting comment, isn't it? Those that fear God will be happy when they see me. Now, perhaps it was David who wrote that. How about us? We're here among, to one degree or another, God-fearing people, are we not? How do people react when they see us? I mean, each other even. Does it make people happy to see you or to see me? It should. If we are following God's law and His ways the way we ought to be, then anybody that fears God should be able to look at us and say, Wow, I'm sure glad to see that person. I know. They're doing things God's way. So it should make them happy to see us. Are we happy to see one another? Why are we happy to see one another? Is it because it underscores the way of God and gives us encouragement and excitement and inspiration from them to us so that we might be closer to God ourselves? That's what the principle of iron sharpening iron is all about. It isn't taking a file to them and trying to file their warts off of them and having an attitude of wanting to change them or find some way to make them change. Our attitude should be to change ourselves so that when they see us, it inspires them to grow and be more like God. That is the challenge before us. 
is to come to be that kind of people. There's a tough one. It is the spiritual example that we set before them that should help inspire them to be more like God. Do we have room for growth? Are we okay as we are? See, in the church of God over the years, we got to the point where we felt pretty comfortable the way we were. Going along, just sort of going through the motions. But it didn't really inspire anybody to get closer to God, did it? Particularly. Get together and talk about the weather or whatever, didn't mean anything. How much do we talk about God and the ways of God? How much do we live them so that people are inspired by us just showing up or being there? I would say that we probably have a long way to go to be where we need to be so that we become an inspiration to each other. If they see us coming, are they going to say, well, I guess we're going to go through a bunch of negativity now. Here comes so-and-so. Prepare to hear this, hear that. Prepare to be uninspired. Be prepared to gossip, to put people down. We all fit that to one degree or another. <clears throat> be an inspiration. Those that fear you will be glad when they see me because I have hoped in your word. They don't need to be happy to see us just because we're good looking or because we're smart or because we're, you know, attractive in this fashion or that fashion or we have nice clothes or a pretty car or, you know, whatever physical things might be. No, because we have hoped in God's word. That's why people should be happy to see us. Because we're faithful and we're true to God. I know, O Eternal, that your judgments are right. We know that. His judgments are right. The decisions He makes in our lives are right. And that you in faithfulness have afflicted me. He shows His faithfulness by afflicting us. If we're not going the way we should be going, then we get afflicted. And we learn faithfulness through that. Will He find faith on the earth when He comes? Will he find faithfulness to his way? Very, very little of it. That's why he says, Through much tribulation enter the kingdom, and many are the afflictions of the righteous. Because even if we are essentially righteous, we still lack. And God is forming us and building us to be kings and priests in the world tomorrow and to teach people his ways forevermore. <clears throat> and it takes quite a bit to prepare us for that. We're just not automatically that way. He takes the weak in the base and begins a transformation process where he has to change the very way we think, to change the very ways we react so that we don't react that way anymore. We react differently. Sometimes it's hard on us. And we have all kinds of afflictions. 
And I suspect the closer we come to the time to do the full end-time work, other than just preparing ourselves, we're going to have more and more affliction. We're going to have more and more trouble and difficulty. Health issues, attitude issues, whatever. And affliction will come with them. Isn't it difficult sometimes? Remember back in school? Seems so difficult to have to sit through certain classes and certain lessons. But what were they doing? They were preparing you for a test at the end, weren't they? You had to have this much information. It had to be in your mind. And you had to be able to pass the test so that you could pass the grade and move on. Now God is preparing us to move on to the next level. Eternal life and being kings and priests and teachers in the world tomorrow. And that does not come easy. We do not change easy. Would it be easier if he took those who were smarter and more noble and transformed them? Maybe. They're just plain smarter and it might come easier to them. I don't know. But they're also maybe, well, I don't know whether they're more vain or not. I've seen people be very, very proud and very vain with very little to be proud of. We're among them. But we can be proud and vain anyway. In our opinion, no matter how skewed, is pretty important to us. I don't think it's easy for God regardless. But still, we have to be prepped, don't we? We've got to be ready. And if we're not getting ourselves ready, then He has to put the screws to us a little bit and get us ready. It's a challenging job He has, but He'll get it done. And he will be glorified in the long run because he's going to get it done. Even if it takes a lot of trouble, affliction, and persecution, and difficulty. That's when we learn the most. Let, I pray you, your merciful kindness be for my comfort according to your word unto your servant. So he says, you faithfully afflicted me. You've put troubles upon me. You have allowed my own actions and thoughts to create problems for me. But please then, show your merciful kindness to me. And we need to pray that. That God will be merciful and kind. And we need to be merciful and kind to one another. Let's face it, we're all in this boat together, aren't we? And we all want each other to succeed. There, there is not a person in this room that I would not like to see in the kingdom of God. I would love to see every one of us make it there. So, then, each of us needs to be working overtime to help ensure that we all make it. Not that we find fault with one another and put one another down and see or find faults in each other or dwell upon those faults or remember those faults. 
but do all we can to help encourage, inspire, help each other to get closer to God. And the best way to do that is by example, of course. But also as we talk one another, with one another about the ways of God and the things we might be going through that are helping us, then it might help them as well. It's so easy for us to get down. I hear once in a while somebody say, well, things are sure bad around here. In whose opinion? I think things are pretty good around here. I really do. I see a lot of people who are working hard to do things God's way. I see a lot of people who are willing to give up their sleep and their privacy and their comfort to go take care of people who are sick. That's good. That's beautiful. That's showing love and concern and compassion for others. You want to find something bad and talk about it? You know, I find generally that those who are complaining the most about how bad things are are the ones that are making it that way with their attitude. Maybe things aren't as bad as they think they are, but because they want to be in a negative attitude and approach, they will repeat that to as many people as will listen. Now, is it going to affect the overall morale of the community and the, con and the congregation if someone goes around telling each person they see how bad things are? And somebody who might have been an attitude of not thinking things were so bad begin to think, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe things are worse than I thought they were. What are they talking about? What could possibly be so bad? If you're going around telling people things are bad, you are creating bad and making things worse by saying it. Now, contrarily, if you were to go about saying, things sure seem to be getting better around here, is that going to help morale? Yeah. Things are getting better? Well, how do you know? Well, I saw such and such. Things must be better. You can have mass psychology changed just by the things we say, the way we act. You can, think, you can make things, you can, you can assess that things are bad and you can help make them worse by repeating your attitude. Or, you can find good and repeat good and people will begin to act better and things will get better. It is an axiom that is generally true. But they who complain the most are the ones creating more trouble than others. Because it spreads.
Let's imagine there's a sports team. And the coach comes in and says, Well, we have no talent. We aren't very good. We can't shoot the basket very well. We can't guard anybody. I don't think we'll win a game this season. We're just plain lousy. We're never going to get any better. (laughs) You know, we're losers. Now let's go out and play ball. There's an inspired team, I'll tell you what. They're going to go out and be world beaters. Most coaches, if they're going to succeed, come in and tell people, oh, we're not perfect, but we have talent here. If we'll utilize it, and if we'll play together as a team, maybe we can cover some of our own individual weaknesses and faults. And as a team, we can prevail. They teach teamwork. They teach doing it together instead of individuals being selfish. And they preach and teach that unitedly we will overcome and we will win. And that team then has a chance to go out and win. Because they're motivated and they think it can happen. So it's your job as a little Christ. And isn't that what we're supposed to be? Christ living in us? Isn't it our job, then, to go out and encourage and inspire and strengthen one another? Empower one another? To speak often and work as a team, then, to make things better here than to pick apart and find fault with and talk about negative things and in so doing make things worse and divide the brotherhood mentally and emotionally from one another. That's what Satan loves to do. Divide and conquer. Isolate them. Tear them down. Separate them from those that they love and need and need to be close to so that you can destroy them individually. I have seen sports teams who had major stars on the team and still couldn't win and be beaten by teams with much less talent who played cohesively and helped one another. It happens often in basketball, football, baseball. Satan does not believe in a team concept. We must. And we need to be mercifully kind to one another and comfort one another according to your word to your servant. God says, my mercy endures forever. And here a claim is being made for that mercy. Show kindness and mercy to me. We all love mercy, don't we? Heard about a guy that got stopped for a traffic ticket one time, or a traffic infraction. He thought, oh no, I'm going to get a biggie this time. And he turned to the officer and smiled and said, this would be a great day to show a little mercy, wouldn't it? And the cop agreed with him and didn't give him a ticket. 
Can we be that way to each other? Do we always have to write the ticket to each other? Do we always have to make sure they pay one way or another? Or can kindness and mercy be a part of our heart and our giving and our way? Let your tender mercies come to me, verse 77, that I may live, for your law is my delight. Now we know all, we're all going to commit infractions. We'll make social slights. We'll say things that are unwise or hurtful or whatever. And people will hold our feet to the fire, won't they? But wouldn't some mercy and kindness, not returning evil for evil, be good? Not retaining it? Oh, sure. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to be unwise in what we say or do. But we expect each other to be perfect. We don't allow people to be people and make mistakes and then show kindness and mercy to them. We want to be sure everybody knows what that person thought or said or did. So we'll go around and repeat it, won't we? Then we go to God and ask for His tender mercy. And He says, Did you show mercy on so-and-so? Well, not really. Well, then, not really with me either. Sorry. I'm going to treat you just like you treat others. Ooh. Let the proud be ashamed, for they dealt perversely with me without a cause. And it is pride and selfishness generally that causes us to be negative with others. Because they hurt our feelings. And our feelings are the only ones that really count. Because we're selfish to the core. And if we get our feelings hurt... We want to hurt back, or we want to repeat it in such a way that it does cause hurt, or to be sure the people around here understand just what kind of person that is. You know, you need to know who you're dealing with here. That person said this, 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 and this. And I think everybody needs to know about that. Does that sound like the glory of God? What I guess we're discussing today is the law of God and the relationships that can be either harmed or helped by our relationship to God's way of doing things. Because it talks about affliction and fixing the problem, and it talks about ignoring the problem, covering it, and showing mercy and kindness. Now, these are difficult. Verse 79, Let those that fear you turn to me, and those that have known your testimonies. Now, that could be a direct prophecy of Christ, as much of this is back here, because those that fear God in heaven should turn to Christ. But it could also be used on a personal level, and I think certainly is. They fear God, let them turn to you and me. 
Now, isn't that something God tells us needs to be done? He says he is going to cause a small group of people in the end time to be a light on a hill is an example to the world of how God lives and how God wants people to live and that their hearts will then be turned to that little group of people because they set the right example and they see God in those people. It isn't the people that are important in that sense. It's God in those people that becomes important. And as they see God in us, then that should give them inspiration to come to us. Now, how is the gathering of God's people going to occur here at the end that we've talked about so much? It is going to come in that a people has turned to God and are operating within His laws and His mercies and kindnesses to each other to the point they become a cohesive team working together and not tearing each other apart so that God can pour His Spirit in and through them and it will shine like a beacon to the world. And God will then be glorified because it was His Spirit and His power that caused those people to come together and to work in peace and harmony. Who have submitted themselves and esteemed others better than themselves. When we speak negatively about someone else, we are esteeming ourselves better than them. Because the very comparison that we are making in judgment places us above them because we are qualified in our mind to judge them and condemn them which by its very nature causes us to lift ourselves up in judgment. When we become condemnative or negative towards somebody else, we are exalting ourselves irrevocably, indubitably, incredibly. That is the process that is occurring. You cannot make a judgment on someone else unless you think that your thinking at that point is higher than theirs. Follow? A parent feels that their judgment and their mind is better than that of their child, and therefore they can make a judgment on that child's behavior. They are correct. By being a parent, they are in the position of making those judgments and their mind and their knowledge is greater than that of that child. And God has set that line of authority up. But He has not given us as human beings that judgmental ability toward each other. He is the judge of all human beings. 
So when we become condemnative, we are idolatrous. We are putting our assessment, our mind, our thought in the position of God and making a judgment that is not ours but God's to make. It is presumptuous. And presumptuousness is as witchcraft, Satanism, the occult. That's where God views it. We had best be very, very careful in our judgments of one another. Now, he says, judge righteous judgment. Sometimes we see things that clearly can be wrong. But we had better be very, very careful how we handle that, lest how we handle it it causes it to get even worse by spreading it instead of covering it. Sometimes people will not let you cover something. I remember a case where we very diligently tried not to let something come out, not to let it be known, not to let any thought of any wrongdoing be spread or to be shown in any way. But sometimes the people involved are not willing to see their sin, and therefore they find ways to try to mitigate it or justify it or deny it, and in so doing, spread it themselves by trying to show it didn't happen. Well, sometimes it's difficult to cover something, but we've got to do our very best. But we would like to blame someone else for our problems. We would like to say they caused this trouble instead of us. It is so difficult for human beings to admit wrong on their part. The hardest thing for a human being to admit, in the words of Herbert Armstrong, is that they are wrong. It's always somebody else who is wrong. Now, I don't know where I was for sure. Probably about 80. Let my heart be sound in your statutes that I be not ashamed. You know, we get, we get ashamed so easily of things we think and do, don't we? And wish we hadn't said or whatever. You know, people can say, did you hear what so-and-so said? And maybe that person is off praying and asking God to forgive them for what they said. But we're out trying to... Re- cause it to be known what they said, and repeating it to somebody else while they're trying to get God to cover it.
If we're sound in God's statutes, we don't commit infractions, then we don't have much to be ashamed of. But unfortunately, we have much to be ashamed of. Verse 81, my soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. Isn't it sometimes that we want God's salvation, but our heart faints because we think, how will I ever, ever make it? Because in and of ourselves, we can't make it. We can't change ourselves into spirit, and we find ourselves falling short of the way we would like to be. That's what we're discussing here today. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And therefore, we're all in position to need a lot of mercy and kindness and tenderness from Him to overlook our sins and our faults and our problems and to accept us anyway and to forgive all those things through the blood of His Son and our Savior. And we need to come to have that attitude toward each other that we're praying He has toward us. Because it's easy to be discouraged and frustrated by ourselves. Sometimes I don't even want to get out of bed and face a day because I know I'm going to have to be living with me all day. It's difficult, isn't it? You know, we, we don't like it when others despise us, but probably we despise ourselves more than anybody else does. And maybe we allow that spite for self to carry over so that we despise them as well. And it makes us feel a little better that they're just as bad as I am. I don't know. We, we have all kinds of psychological tricks to make ourselves feel better when we have feelings of inferiority so deep within us. And why do we have feelings of inferiority? Because we're inferior. <laughs> it's, it's really simple. We are far inferior to God. And that is our goal and our purpose is to be like Him. So if we can find that others are inferior as well, then it makes us feel a little better, I guess, about being inferior. But why don't we all work at mitigating our inferiority by growth and overcoming and by giving other people benefit of that opportunity as well. Because being negative to them hurts them. It doesn't help them. It doesn't help them at all. So, our soul faints because of lack of confidence in salvation. But we have hope in His Word. Because there is so much hope in these words here, is there not? When we read through here, we see an awful lot of, about trial and trouble and chastening and so on, but we see an awful lot of hope. God talks about mercy, forgiveness, kindness, over and over and over again. But if we need hope, what do we do? We open His Word and we begin to read. And it'll say, from Genesis to Revelation, in spite of yourself... You may make it after all, because I will see you through, and you will have salvation if you keep working at it. And that gives us hope. I'm reducing a whole big book, just to a few sentences there, but really that's the story that is in here. As we hope that God will have the mercy He claims to have. My eyes fail for your word saying, when will you comfort me? 
We read it, says it, we'll be comforted, we'll be strengthened, we'll be helped, we'll be blessed. He'll turn his face to us someday. But on the tip of our lips and tongue is, when? I want patience. Give it to me now. When will you comfort me? And we can begin to despair. We can begin to give up a little bit or not work as hard because we want it now. We want comforted now. We don't trust God that His timeline is the best. Would we not like to see everybody healed? Would we not like to see everybody blessed? Would we not like to see all of our prayers answered, our hopes fulfilled? Yes, we would. But it's the waiting that is hard. And it is in that waiting that we learn patience and trust and faith. Belief that He will do. Do you need faith when you get the answer immediately? Or, I mean, do you have faith? Does it build faith, I guess is what I'm trying to say. If you get the answer you want all the time? No. It is waiting that teaches us that there's a difference between us and God. And He will take care of the needs when He is ready. And we need to be faithful and hopeful and obedient until the time comes that He says, Now my faithful servant. Waiting becomes very, very difficult for a human being. When will you comfort me? For I am become like a bottle in the smoke. I see through a glass darkly, as Paul put it, and this is probably where he got that thought. I'm like looking through a piece of glass that's been in the fire and all soot-filled and black. I can't see the answers. I can't see when. People spend a lot of time trying to determine when. And it's futile because no man among us knows when. Closest I'll go out on a limb on is saying soon. Soon. But what does soon mean? Soon could be In an hour, soon could be five years. Soon in the breadth or the scope of 6,000 years could be 100 years. Pretty soon compared to 6,000 years, isn't it? Well, I don't know what soon means, but I feel like a lot of things are happening. The leaves are on the trees, as Luke puts it, that show that things are getting very, very close to the climactic end of this age, the destruction of our nation. It isn't far off. But it's hard for us to get from day to day. So, even though we have trouble seeing and we don't know when, and it's like looking through a glass darkly, he says, yet do I not forget your statutes. That is key to remember right there. No matter how dark things look, no matter how hard it is to see the answers that we are seeking, 
Don't forget His statutes. In other words, we've got to continue living His way, even though it seems at times futile or like it's never going to happen. We can't give up. We can't give in. We have to move forward. We can't despair. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on them that persecute me? That must have been a thought that went through the apostles and the early church's minds when they began to be persecuted. I mean really persecuted. We've been denigrated some or put down by different ones. But we haven't been stoned. We haven't been thrown in prison. We haven't been snake bit. We haven't been shipwrecked. We haven't gone with fastings, starvation, because there was no food, as Paul did. There are a lot of things we haven't been through. You know, they must have wondered at times, when will this end? Surely Christ is coming soon. And he let them labor under that, knowing that it was still about 2,000 years away. They were hoping. And all the apostles save John were killed. Now that's persecution. That's martyrdom. And many, many, many of the members of the church were also killed. You know where they're going to be in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye? In the kingdom of God. That's when. When the resurrection comes. And they didn't go to heaven, and they're not going to be in the kingdom of God until you and I are prepared and ready to be with them. They lived in holes and caves and on hard floors. They were sawed in half. They were hung upside down. They were boiled in oil. All manner of torment was brought upon them. But they're not going to be ahead of you and me. We're going to be there the same time they are. I don't know how much we'll have to go through before God makes a difference. I really don't. I know some of us may die. Eighty-five, the proud have digged pits for me which are not after your law. People will do things unlawfully, unjustly, unmercifully to us. They don't know God's law. They'll kill us thinking they do Christ a service. Literally believing that God would have them kill us. That it's their duty before God to kill us. The whole world's going to think that way. But all your commandments are faithful. They persecute me wrongfully. Help you me. We have been accused rightfully and correctly many times because we do wrong. But we're also going to be accused falsely. And God tells us how to handle that. He says, if you're accused and you did it, you certainly have no complaint. If you're accused and you didn't do it, then and you take it patiently... 
then God accepts that. That's what is acceptable to him. If we are accused and didn't do it and are patient about it and don't get all upset about it, that's acceptable. They had almost consumed me upon the earth, but I forsook not your precepts. It would be poss- if it were possible, the very elect would be deceived in the things that are coming up in the next months and years. We're being told ahead of time not to forsake his precepts. It would seem that what is coming is going to be very, very appealing to all people, including church people. But they won't be keeping God's precepts and His laws and His ways, and that's how we can tell the difference. And we cannot forsake those. Now, we have a history of it. We'd better be careful, brethren. We cannot automatically assume that we will cling to God's precepts. I personally witnessed and observed, as did you, hundreds and thousands of people who were simply told, very glibly, in a sermon, without proof, because there is none, that they didn't have to keep the Sabbath, they didn't have to pay any attention to unclean meats, they didn't have to do this, that, or the other thing, and they said, oh, what a revelation. New knowledge. New knowledge? Old Protestantism. But they took it, hook, line, and sinker, and forgot God's precepts. How can we be so easily hornswoggled? How can it be that that happens so easily? Quicken me, or excite me, after your loving kindness. So shall I keep the testimonies of your mouth. I think I'll stop there today. That's a little over an hour, and it's probably enough. It's hard to digest this much. We won't just keep on, but there is so much here that would help us and encourage us and strengthen us if we can but follow through and treat each other the way God is saying we want to be treated and then how we should treat one another. And then there will be growth. Things are better around here than you might think they are. Maybe they're not nearly as bad as you think they are. Maybe a lot of people are doing a lot of good things. And if they're good 90% of the time, 95% of the time, 99% of the time, and we see them commit an infraction, or think they did, 1% of the time, then things are really bad around here. Right? It's all about attitude, isn't it? It's all about what we want to promote and spread and help rather than hurt. That's what it all comes down to, doesn't it? One fly in the ointment spoils the apothecary. Now, we had one year when there were lots and lots of flies here. Just one year. I mean, there were flies everywhere. I thought it was the plague of Egypt. Well, it wasn't quite that bad, but we had a lot of flies that year, five, six years ago, whenever it was. It really seemed like things were bad around here. And they were worse that year. But you know, we don't usually have many flies. 
And just because I see one fly, I'm not going to say things are really bad around here. We might see each other occasionally make a mistake or say the wrong thing, maybe even fairly frequently. But I'm telling you, things are pretty good around here. You don't think so, go to Detroit. If you don't think so, go to Tokyo. If you don't think so, go anywhere on this earth and try to find people who spend as much time as they do in God's Word and in prayer and trying to learn to get along with each other. I think things are pretty good around here. Okay? And I'm going to promote that. They might even get better if we all have that attitude. That might be worth a try. Wow. Wow.